Yeah. I mean, this isn't just something that you get over, right? This isn't, it's not over just because they came in and did this rape kit. It's not over if they happen to get justice and their rapist goes to prison. Only about five out of every thousand cases of rapist goes to prison. Only five. Right. Oh, I gotta go. I've been working, told them please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bro. Just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog. Swear I paid on my fees. I was starving for this day, now my fan they can't eat. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Another cup of nurses episode with your hosts, Peter and Matt here. Thank you everyone for tuning in and taking the time for listening. If you guys find value in this podcast or previous podcasts, please give us a like, comment, or subscribe. It grows us and it keeps on motivating us to keep on producing this high quality content. You can now rate the show on Spotify. So if you have the Spotify app, please go there and smash the star rating that you think we deserve. It's going to ultimately give us uh, better search engine optimization for the algorithms. And we have been seeing an improvement in uh, organic searches and downloads, so we appreciate that. If you guys want to find any show notes or anything related to announcements and what's happening with the Cup of Nurses, check out cupofnurses.com. Uh, we have blog posts there for nursing students, and we are growing as we speak. Uh, for anything related to consciousness and expanding yourself and self-improvement and positivity, check out We Are Frontline Warriors. And we also have merch stores for both opportunities for cup of nurses and We Are Frontline Warriors. We're wearing some Frontline Warriors merch right now as we speak. Also, our YouTube is popping. We're trying to get 5,000 subs maybe this year. So let's go. Our nursing debriefments are on there where we talk about how our shift has been going after like a three in a row. So a ton of information out there, especially for new nurses that want to know what it's like to work in a hospital. And of course, we're working on this great app that's going to innovate and revolutionize healthcare. We are working diligently on it every single time, every single day, actually. And we're hoping to be launching really, really soon, Q1 of 2022. So stay tuned for updates and all that there. And yeah, let the show begin. How you doing, Pete? I'm doing great. Another amazing guest today, we have Leah Helmbrecht. Leah Helmbrecht, she is a sane nurse, which means a sexual nurse examiner. And we talk about forensic nursing, things that she does in the hospital, and just basically what sane nursing is all about and some potential future changes in the system. Hey, Leah, nice to meet you. Thank you so much for being here. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself, what kind of nursing you you do and, and currently or have done or currently do? Sure. Um, thank you for having me. Um, I, in the past, I have been an operating room nurse. Um, I traveled as an OR nurse for seven and a half years. Um, and then recently I've gone permanent. Um, I did remote work as a tele-triage nurse um, before um, finding out about SANE nursing, sexual assault nurse examiner, which is what I'm doing right now. Um, and then I'm also working as an admissions discharge nurse. Okay. And how was your experience as an operating room? I know it's completely different from bedside and it's probably completely different pace than what uh, Peter and I do. Oh, absolutely. It's so different. So actually my, my first nursing job um, right out of nursing school was on the floor, like a med surge floor. Um, and it was so crazy, right? Like what, six to eight patients, um, for a nurse, um, and very minimal help. So a friend of mine said, you should come to the operating room, um, one patient at a time <laughs> and they're asleep and no family members. Right. So, um, that's, uh, I went there and I absolutely loved it. It's different in the fact of you're more just knowing what the surgeon wants, having to work quickly in emergencies um, and, you know, deciding you have multiple people asking you for things, right? Anesthesia needs you to get the blood um, to give back to this patient, but then the surgeon needs you to grab sutures to stop the bleeding. So which do you do first? <laughs> which do you do first, right? So um, 
it's, I really enjoyed it. Um, I was lucky enough that uh, I could travel with it for so long and it was a great, um, great uh, specialty to travel in because there were always OR, OR nurses needed. Yeah, so sure. when you did your traveling OR, did you have to do 312s as well? Was it like completely different where you had to sign a contract for being on a call a couple days a week or how does that work? Yeah, it really depends on the hospital. So um, some hospitals don't want to pay you call um, pay, right, as a traveler. So a lot of hospitals, I didn't have to take call at all. And others, I maybe did one call shift a week. Um, I mainly did day shift. And um, it was either 312s or 410s. Um, I never went for the ones that were 5.8s because I like my sanity and my days off. So, um, but I mean, there's, there's literally all different shifts, right? All different start times. We uh, in the OR are lucky enough that we actually most of the time got breaks, right? We had break nurses come in um, to let us out of the OR because you can't just leave in the middle of surgery. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was great. I think, you know, if you like more of the technical aspect of nursing, like getting to see the inside of the human anatomy and how, um, you know, how these surgeons are literally putting people back together um, and being a part of that. Um, I think it's a, it's a great career, um, great specialty to go into. Yeah. And what made you switch over from being an OR nurse to a sexual assault, assault uh, nurse examiner? Was there like one uh, particular case or this is just something you heard online and started to explore more? How did you get into that? You know, it was really interesting. I had never heard of a SANE, a sexual assault nurse examiner before. And uh, I had, so I was a traveler for seven and a half years. I decided I wanted to try something different outside of the OR um, and even outside of nursing altogether. So I actually became a travel nurse recruiter. Um, unfortunately that was at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so that was when like the ORs shut down and all of those jobs disappeared. Um, you know, I don't know how long you guys have been traveling, uh, when you picked up, but basically, unless you were an ICU nurse, it was a huge struggle, right? Um, I think they went from like 14,000 jobs down to 300, um, so as a recruiter who has to build their own desk, it was, it was a huge challenge, but I found out about SANE nursing, um, from one of my travelers that I had signed. She was, um, previously an ER nurse and had done SANE, was SANE certified. So when she sent me her resume, I was like, SANE, like what? what does that mean? And I kind of just started Googling it and looking into it. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Um, and so, you know, it, I was kind of in that um, point in my recruiter career where it was really, really hard. And most of the days it was giving travelers really bad news. Like, Hey, they're canceling your contracts. Hey, uh, they're dropping the hospitals, dropping your pay. And I, I hated it. I hated it so much. So, um, I was worried that if I stayed outside of nursing for too long, that I wouldn't be able to get back into it. If the recruiter job didn't work out. Plus, we're in a pandemic, I have my RN license, and I felt like I needed to contribute back to my community in that way, right? So I decided to go back to nursing. Um, and I got a job as a um, tele triage nurse working remote um, from home. And just anyone in the Denver um, area can call in for advice. And I actually had my first um, sexual assault patient call in and she's, you know, couldn't remember what happened, wasn't sure what she should do or where she should go. And, um, and I pulled up our sexual assault guideline and ended up sending her into the emergency room. Um, and after that, I kind of looked more into it, found out that uh, University of Colorado Hospital here has a free SANE program. So I can actually kind of do the online modules, see if it's actually something that I'm interested in. And it's at no cost to me. Um, and the more I did it, the more interested I became in it. 
um, and I completed the whole program. Um, and then a, happened to see a sane job pop up at my hospital um, that I was at. So I feel like it kind of just all um, just rolled together, you know, just like laid out perfectly for me. And that's kind of how I uh, how I ended up in this position, how I found out about it. And yeah, it, it's great. Um, I really enjoy it. So being a, a sane nurse, um, what are like your kind of day-to-day activities? Because like I've looked a little bit, a little bit into forensic nursing, but I didn't do like too much exploring because majority of people are are female victims. So usually, I know my clinical experience, we did have a sexual assault victim come in, and she was female. And their rule was, if it's a female getting sexually assaulted, then it's gonna be a female nurse doing the examination. That's, that's how it was back in Joel. Yeah. So I kind of can you describe what you would, what you kind of do as as a sane nurse? Yeah, and you know, I think it just depends on where you are, right? We have some great male sane nurses. And with that, you know, sometimes even when it's a female that was assaulted, which really anybody can be assaulted, right? Doesn't matter your gender or race or socioeconomic class or age, anybody can. Um, But sometimes when it's a female that was just sexually assaulted by a male, um, it's actually kind of nice to have a male sane nurse to show them, you know, give them a positive male experience, right? To say, hey, I'm a man and I am here to help you and I believe you, right? Because I think in society, that's like such the, a huge issue where most of these patients aren't believed, right? So um, as a sane nurse, um, what I do is I basically give them their Uh, go over their options, right? So there's, each state has different reporting options. Most states have the full law enforcement, um, like full law enforcement investigation option where we call the police, they come down, get a statement, do a full investigation. Um, The kit, the rape kit is sent off to the lab for analysis. um, And, uh, you know, they go through all of the legal uh, processes. Um, most states also have an anonymous um, option. And this is where the police don't know the patient's name at all. Everything's written anonymously on the outside. We take their statement, we do the whole kit, and then the kit goes to the crime lab and it sits on a shelf. And they have a certain amount of of time to where they can decide to um, upgrade that uh, that reporting status. So here in Colorado, it's two years. So it'll sit on the shelf for two years before the evidence is um, ultimately destroyed. Um, so, you know, and it just kind of gives that person time to decide, like, is this really something that they want to go through, right? Because we live in a society of victim blaming, shaming, and not believing. And it's up to them to um, have to prove that this happened to them, right? Um, So it's not an easy decision to make to actually come forward. And um, a lot of people don't just come forward and say, yes, I want to file a police report, um, as a lot of, um, you know, a society suspects that they do. Um, in Colorado, we have a medical reporting option. Um, that's where we can actually, the police know their name, but there's no investigation done. Um, but we can collect the evidence and actually run the evidence to see if anything comes back. Right. So, so, I mean, there, it's great to have different options and I can go through why some some people would want to do those options, but those are kind of what I go through, some of the things that I explain to those, these patients. So once we decide which reporting option they want to do, um, then we go back to my SANE room um, where we can have privacy. They tell me everything that happened in their own words, and I'm literally typing word for word what they're saying, right? Um, from there, whatever they tell me is going to kind of drive my... Um, my uh, assessment on them. So what I'm looking for, like, so when the police are asking, they're like, where did this happen? Who was it? You know, things like that. I'm more looking for what happened during the assault. Did they bite you here? Did they lick you here? I'm trying to figure out where can I find DNA? Um, You only need eight to 10 skin cells 
to get a DNA match. So, um, you know, if they say they grabbed my leg and squeezed it really hard, there might be some DNA there. I'm going to swap there, right? Um, if there was penetration, right, of any kind, I'm going to do an external vaginal exam um, and swab. And then I'm also going to do internal. Um, and this is all depending on what the patient wants, right? If they don't want an internal exam, I, then we don't have to. The main purpose of this is to give these victims back control that was taken away from them during the assault, right? So I'm just there to help them um, in any way that I can uh, give them back that control. Um, so after that, um, I kind of do like a head to toe. If I see any bruises, abrasions um, that weren't there before, then I will take a photo of it um, for the records. Um, and then I document everything, right? So the photos that I take are very specific. Um, we have the ruler. It's just like in the movies where you have, you see those, those pictures with the ruler up to the bruise. Um, and so when I'm documenting, I'm documenting, um, you know, on the right lateral side of the leg, uh, noted a circular bruise, it purplish blue in color, um, tender to touch, right? So it's very specific. And that's so that if those photos end up going missing, and I have to testify on something in court, um, I have all of my notes that are very, very specific. Um, after that, we definitely want to give them post trauma care. So that's getting them in touch with um, the victims advocacy groups um, that's, you know, helping them, um, making sure if, um, you know, they want to talk to somebody that those victim advocacy groups are really great. They have therapists, they have, they can help them with the legal part of it. Um, also giving them uh, information on how to do um, uh, restraining orders if they need to. Um, just a multiple multitude of things like that. Um, and then we want to make sure medically uh, that we are covering them, right? So um, that's giving them uh, plan B, right? So we give a medication called Ella, which is a type of plan B pill. Um, Ella is uh, a little bit better in the fact that you can give it up to 120 hours after the assault, and it's just as good as day one, right? Um, we give STD prophylactic medications that cover um, trichomonas, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. Um, obviously, there are a lot more STDs out there than just those. So we do give them the option to follow up with our um, STD clinic in two weeks. And then also um, NPEP, which is for HIV prevention, if they want to do that. Um, that's a whole 28-day medication um, that they will have to complete. But all of those medications are covered under the Violence Against Women's Act um, and uh, free of charge um, for those who are going through this um, this exam. Yeah, and you mentioned it. You mentioned at the beginning that it's that sometimes it's better to have like a male examiner because if it's like a female, you know, she she's usually getting raped by a by a you know a male. Um, then you said it kind of starts to like build that trust back into the other sex. Do you know how long? Um, like these psychological effects could last from, from like rape. I know it could last like years to like permanent, but is there like an average that you've seen? Lifetime, lifetime, right? It's, it's lifetime. It's everybody's different. Right. Um, so, but yeah, yeah. I mean, this isn't just something that you get over, right. This isn't, it's not over just because they came in and did this rape kit. It's not over, if they happen to get justice and their rapist goes to prison, only about five out of every thousand cases of rapist goes to prison. Only five, right? I was actually gonna ask about the statistic and that's like the thing that uh, makes it worse for the victim is when they hear this statistic, it's like, what's the, what's, what's the point of going through all this when their justice might not be served, you know? 
Exactly. And that's why it's so important to have those reporting options, right? Um, to give them time to think about, is this something I want to want to really do? Um, you know, you think about all these women who come forward or people who come forward years down the line, right? We always see that in the news. Well, why did they take so long to come forward? You don't know somebody's process, right? You don't know what finally motivates someone to say, I'm strong enough to come forward and actually bring this to light. Because when they do, especially when it's someone famous, right, they're constantly going to be scrutinized and not believed because most like most often people are going to love that famous person, right? That's why they're famous. People love them. And so when somebody comes forward, they're, you know, they're basically trash. They get hate mail. They get, you know, just, it, it's awful, you know? And so when somebody says like, oh, man, you know, even when someone comes forward and then says, okay, never mind, never mind, you know, I, I lied. It's, it's fine, you know? most often they weren't lying. They are just tired of getting all of this hate, right? It's, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. So um, yeah. And that just goes back to how our society is uh, basically bred, you know, just growing, just, you know, never believing the victim and always, you know, giving the perpetrator the benefit of the doubt. So um, yeah, it's crazy how like with all these celebrities, like we see them as like these these grandiose people, almost like you know superheroes, not not really capable of doing like these negative things. And then when you have like a like a sexual assault victim come out, like you you, you hear them talk about, hey, you know, the public is giving me so much scrutiny. Like, why does nobody believe? Me? Like, you, you hear that all the time. And it's, it's it's shame that that happens, you know. And like it's like it's the whole victim blaming thing what it comes down to be so is there like some common misconceptions that people have about like sexual assault victims yeah absolutely you know that um so some of some of the main misconceptions just in general with sexual assault right um is that just because someone was sexually assaulted uh doesn't mean that they don't want to have consensual consensual sex Right. Um, and so a lot of it, um, a lot of the times we ask, you know, when was your last consensual sex? And some people don't come in right away. Right. Um, and so if they say like, oh, well, I had sex with my boyfriend, um, you know, two days after, then, oh, well, you must be you must be lying. How could you possibly want to have sex? <laughs> you know, if you, if you just went through this traumatic event, right. Uh, another misconception is um, people, people who change their story, right. Are also lying, but we know with the neurobiology of trauma um, that, uh, you know, a lot of this, a lot of the memories in the brain can be jumbled um, best memory recall is going to be three full sleep cycles after an, an assault. So even police, when they're in a shootout, um, they get three days before they have to go um, and make their initial statement, right? So, uh, but we expect these patients who just went through a huge trauma, who just came in to say like, okay, tell me what happened. And you have to remember every single um, thing that just happened in order. And if you change anything out of order, you must be lying, right? Um, there's, you know, a mis huge misconception that you can come in and we can tell you if you were sexually assaulted. Um, you know, specifically the vagina was made to go through a lot of trauma, right? It goes through childbirth. Um, a lot of times we don't see trauma. That doesn't mean that the assault didn't happen just because we don't see trauma does not mean that what they're saying happened, didn't happen. Um, a lot of times, um, sorry, my dog is like scratching at the door. Um, you know, another thing is, oh, well, I can go and they can do a drug screen and tell me if I was drugged or not. Um, the number one drug used in sexual assault is alcohol, right? 
get someone so blacked out drunk that they can't remember what happened. Um, Another thing is a lot of these drugs that are used in sexual assault, they either end up leaving the system before anyone ever makes it to the emergency room, or they're just drugs that we don't typically test for in the emergency room. Like there's no way for us to test for them. Um, And so I always have to tell them, I'll send it off to the crime lab for further analysis, but I do have to tell them, you know, just because it, you know, if it comes back clear, I have to tell you, like, it's not that I, we don't believe you that you were drugged or it doesn't mean that you weren't drugged. Um, You know, it like, we just don't have the capabilities um, of testing for everything. So, um, you know, just some misconceptions. I watched this, this uh, one movie recently and uh, it was about this girl that was sexually assaulted and her boyfriend's trying to take her all around to all these hospitals and she has to pee really bad. And he's like, no, you have to wait, you have to wait, you know? Uh, and so she ends up peeing in a cup and <laughs> carrying this cup around with her. Um, and in the past they've had people do that, but please don't do that anymore. Um, uh we will just discard it because a defense lawyer later on will just say, well, we don't know whose urine that was. Nobody witnessed them doing that, right? Um, So you don't have to bring your urine (laughs) to the emergency room. Um, You know, and probably one of the biggest things too is that we wanna put these patients comfort before anything else, right? Let them eat, let them drink just because they take a shower does not mean we can't try to get evidence collection on them, right? Um, DNA is extremely resilient, extremely resilient. So it's okay if you've taken a shower, you can still come in. Um, Different hospitals have different um, uh, timeframes of when they can collect evidence. Uh, For my hospital, for those who are post-pubescent, um, considered adults, we will do, do that um, up to seven days post-assault. And in seven days, you've been peeing, you've been eating, you've been brushing your teeth and drinking and taking showers. And it's, it's fine. We can still try to get some DNA. Um, so other hospitals, it's five days. Um, it just all goes back to funding. Um, you know, so... I mean, so many misconceptions, um, you know, to debunk. And um, I think just overall, um, we as a society just need to start taking that first step in believing the, these victims, right? Uh, we need to start doing that. And then um, because it, just because we believe them, unfortunately doesn't mean that they're going to get justice in our system, but believing someone can make all the difference in their healing process. Yeah, it's definitely a tough situation to be in and, and the system that, that we have, you know, isn't always uh, set up best for, for, for the victims. So since you've been in the system for a little bit, what's something that, that you would like to see change or, or potentially uh, a change in the future? Or do you think if it changed, it would, it would improve the outcomes or, or the, or the mm-hmm. care? I think that we need to do more education with our law enforcement officers. Um, You know, in, (laughs) I recently had to um, go down and, and sit and talk with some police officers with Lieutenant. And even then just some of the things that were said, you know, um, uh, of just, how to treat these patients and how to talk to them and them knowing and understanding the neurobiology of trauma and why patients are acting the way they do. Right. Because that's, that's their, um, their, their job when they do their training, it's mostly like, okay, here are the certain questions that you have to ask. Right. Um, but as law enforcement, um, they are the first people that these victims come in contact with, right? And it'll make all the difference on whether they decide to go forward with their exam um, or if they even decide to come forward in the future, because we do know that 
a person who was victimized that was sexually assaulted um, has a high risk of being sexually assaulted again. Um, and if their experience the first time uh, was not good, then they're not going to come forward again, right? I'd like to see a huge change in our judicial system where, um, you know, you see these, oh, well, it was their first offense. Um, they're on medication to lower their libido or um, we're just going to let them off with probation, things like that, um, because it's it's their first offense, right? It has nothing to do, sexual assault has nothing to do with sex. Domestic violence, like intimate partner violence, has nothing to do with anger management. It has to do with power and control, right? So when you give somebody a medication to lower their libido, it doesn't make any difference. They will find a way to go and sodomize somebody, to get an object, to hold that person down. It does not mean that that's going to keep them from assaulting somebody again. Anger management, these people have no problems with anger management because a lot of times when these domestic violence charges come up, a lot of people in their lives are like, what? They're the nicest people. They're, they're so kind. I can't even believe it. I, I would not even believe it because it's not about anger management. They don't lash out in public. It's about power and control over that specific person in their life, right? So I think our judicial system, the way that we handle these these perpetrators needs to change. Um, and then again, back to law enforcement, just treating the patients um, differently and going in believing the patients, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I- that's, that's crazy how many loopholes the system has when it tries to seek justice. Mm -hmm. And just like you mentioned that uh, you could have a loophole by taking a pill to lower your sex drive because that's the reason why you're acting out this way and you know and if you look at the hardcore facts no one in a normal society is going to be trying to um domestically you know create violence among somebody or rape somebody just because of a high sex drive that's yeah. not those are not normal thoughts nor behavior right it's crazy how like <clears throat> how the rapist has like this because I, I read a book about this before or, or the author maybe I, it was a long time i think it was back like you know when i was like in college or something but it was it was explaining that uh, it was explaining like the like what happens to the to the victim and you know and like the, how rapist has like this internal lack of, of control and the only way they see a solution is to kind of control some aspect about someone's life and that's why they they rape the person or they abuse a the person because that's showing them that they have control over something which is which is really fucked up if you think about it because that's the way they individualize dumb heavy control is having sexual control over over somebody or abusing wow. somebody and it's it's literally like a it's it's like a mental disease you could say that that a libido anti-libido pill is is it going to fix and it's just yeah. crazy to to realize that people go through this and like you said before that the the victim it usually happens again which is wild because if it's only five, or seven, five cases out of a thousand only really get solved, then this person could really legit be abused their whole life. And that's like, and then imagine the suicide that gets, that gets attributed to it because if, if you got raped three or four times and you're still in the system and none's ever getting solved and it's, for example, the same person raping you over and over again, but nobody believes you or there's not enough evidence or you know the person's such a, such a good person and you can't get your problem solved, you know, that person, even when he's not raping you, he still has control over you because you have no way of getting the truth out. Yeah. And uh, people commit suicide because, you know, because of these, these things. And it's, it's very sad and very unfortunate that we live in a society like this. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we need to we need to stop telling these, uh, you know, people of uh, uh, intimate partner violence like, oh, if the if the assault is so bad, if it's so bad, why don't you just leave? right? It's not that easy, right? So they're at high risk for being uh, murdered if they stay, and they're at even higher risk of being murdered if they leave. Like your chances of being murdered are the highest when you decide to leave and even up to a year. And that's not even just the victim, right, of being at risk for being murdered, but their family and friends because and children, right? 
if I can't have you, nobody can, right? They, let's say they do get away. They go and change their name, change everything. That assailant is going to go harass their family and their friends until they find out where you are, right? So it's not that easy. And then if you look at the timeline of abuse, right? So it's not, it never starts off as abuse, right? It never starts off as abuse. Um, It starts off as love bombing, right? Oh my gosh, he's amazing. He's giving me all of these things. He's and, And I say he just because that's statistically uh, most common is the abuser is a male and the victim is a female, but it can also happen both ways, right? In, in all, um, all instances. So it starts off as love bombing. You get somebody to have this emotional attachment to you, right? Um, and then down the line, it starts to be, well, uh, alienation against uh, their family and friends. You know, I don't think they really like me. If you really cared about me, you'll stop talking to them and hanging out with them. Right. So now, now um, they have no support system. Right. Um, then it turns into, you know, um, you don't need to work. I can, I can afford to work for both, you know, afford to take care of both of us. You don't need to work. So now they don't have any support system and they don't have any money, any financial means of getting away, um, then they'll either get them a pet or impregnate them, have a child with them. Um, If you try to leave, I'm going to take your pet. If you try to leave, I'm going to take the kids. You're never going to see them, right? So now that they have no no support system, no money, and they're going to have the one thing that they do that they love taken away from them or hurt, right? If you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to hurt the kids. I'm going to hurt the the dog, right? Um, uh, and then it just starts escalating even further, right? Um, to the point where we know that once it gets to the point of uh, the intimate partner violence strangulation, um, then that is the last precursor to homicide. So it just will continue to escalate and escalate and escalate until murder. So whenever I see my patients who have been assaulted, it really has to be their decision to leave, right? I'm never going to pressure them to leave because they could be at risk for being murdered if they stay, but I could also be telling them to leave and they could still be at risk for being murdered. It has to be their decision. And I'm just there to give them the resources that they need um, to leave when they're ready. But again, as society, we need to stop making it like this huge assumption that it's so easy to just up and leave, a, you know, an abusive situation. And ultimately, you're there, which is cool as a nurse, because you're the advocate. And that's what we do best is we advocate for our patients, uh, no matter the circumstances. And I also want to mention that you were talking about the neurobiology trauma of everything. So everything in full circle, the abusers doing all this physical violence to you, emotion. And also you have your own uh, neurobiology that's not on your side anymore because it was, you know, trauma induced that's creating chemicals that's just putting you in your own prison. Uh, and how does that all kind of like go into the rape-induced paralysis? Like what is the chemical breakup there? So there's certain parts of your brain that get triggered during a trauma, right? And this could be for any trauma. It doesn't have to be a sexual assault or being physically assaulted, right? You could be in a car accident and these parts of your brain will light up. Um, so when a trauma occurs, um, so you've got your, um, hypothalamus and, um, your pituitary glands, right? So hypothalamus, pituitary glands, and adrenal glands make up your HPA access. Okay. And your, and so when a, a trauma occurs, your hypothalamus will, um, activate your pituitary gland, which will stimulate your adrenal glands to release a series of hormones. Those hormones are going to be um, like a corticosteroids, um, 
like cortisol, um, oxytocin, and just like a natural opioid in your body, right? Um, and each person is going to have a different amount of those um, hormones released. That's going to determine that person's affect, right? So there's no right or wrong way for somebody to be acting after an assault. I've seen some patients that literally they have to pace back and forth because they've got those steroids that are being released. That's causing them that fight or flight. Right. And they're just pacing back and forth. Their thoughts are everywhere. They're talking a mile a minute. Um, I have patients that are like, I, I actually, I feel fine. It's kind of weird. Like, I don't know, like, should I feel differently? Um, like it doesn't hurt or anything down there. So I don't, I don't really know what happened. And that's that, um, natural, uh, opioid that's released, right. The natural morphine in your body. Um, you don't feel pain. You're kind of numbed the oxytocin. I, I feel okay. Sometimes I'm actually just like laughing with the patient, right? We're just chit-chatting and 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 laughing about other other things, right? You don't always have to see these patients as being like just absolutely crying and um, overwhelmed with the situation, right? Um, you also have patients who come in three days, whatever, two three days after the assault, and it's like, what were you doing this whole time? Because um, typically, you know, someone would think like, well, if you were assaulted, wouldn't you want to get help right away? Right? That's like the initial thought. But with that natural opioid that gets released, they're just extremely tired. They just want to sleep. They don't want to really talk to anyone. And they'll literally say like, I don't know, I was just sleeping. They literally slept for an entire like two days, which is why we still say like, you can still come in just because it's been, um, you know, a few days, you can still come in, and we can still do this exam. Um, so that's kind of those, that whole process of you shouldn't judge somebody, uh, whether they're telling the truth or lying about their assault, just based off of their affect. Um, unfortunately, uh, those um, hormones that are released are most damaging to the memory parts of the brain, which is your hippocampus and your amygdala. Um, and so your amygdala is processing the, that emotional memory. Um, and the hippocampus is more of that encoding, putting all of those memories in order, right? I woke up this morning and I opened my eyes and then I got out of bed and I walked to the kitchen to get a glass of water. Um, it might be like, well, I got up, got a glass of water and then I opened my eyes, <laughs> right? Wait, that doesn't make sense. And you can just see them kind of like that, that didn't make sense. I have to, I, I can't remember. Right. Um, and so if you can imagine after this trauma and this flood of hormones um, gets released, imagine your brain is like the messiest office that you've ever seen. And all of your memories are written down on little post-it notes. They're stuck in different file cabinets. And then it's right after an assault and someone says, okay, tell me exactly what happened. And your brain is just trying to run around, collect all of those, um, those post-it notes and put them back in order. And it just doesn't, it doesn't work, right? You can't do that. So that's why they say, you know, best recall is three full sleep cycles after an assault. Your brain, it's giving your brain time to process what happened and get everything lined up. Unfortunately, if any um, alcohol or drugs were used during the assault, that encoding might never come back. Right. So, um, so then with rape induced paralysis, um, what happens is your body um, gets an enormous flood of these hormones after a trauma. And it's basically so rape induced paralysis, tonic immobility is another term for it. It's an autonomic response. That means it's uncontrollable. And so you 
go completely paralyzed. I have patients that will say, I don't, it was weird. It was like, I, I couldn't move. I couldn't talk, but they can completely see around them. They know what's happening, but they can't move and they can't scream out for help. Um, and, uh, and so what happens with that is you get a lot of, well, why didn't you fight back? Right. People blaming, why didn't you fight back? Uh, I don't know because they don't understand why they didn't fight back. There's self blame. I don't know why I didn't fight back. And then there's the perpetrator. Well, they didn't say no. They didn't tell me to stop. So I thought they wanted it. Right. And so that's where we need to stop just saying, um, you know, you need to ask for consent, but you also need to check back in to make sure um, that there's participation. If your partner stops participating um, and they're just laying there limp, your consent is done, right? It doesn't matter if they said yes before. If they're laying there and, and they're not participating further in the sexual um, connection, then consent is off the table and you need to stop right there, right? So, um, you know, and this is where all of that, again, that secondary victimization that we'll talk about comes in, you know, why didn't you fight back? Why were you wearing, why were you wearing that? You know, you were asking for it. Why would you go out um, by yourself? Why, you, what time was it, right? Um, that secondary victimization is now somebody's come forward saying that they were sexually assaulted and either law enforcement or just people in general um, in, in their daily lives or in society are now blaming them for getting raped, right? So that is a long answer to your question, <laughs> um, ultimately. So. It's a crazy circumstance because like, <clears throat> first of all, like nobody should experience uh, being raped and then you get raped and then you have this influx of, of like neurochemicals and this whole uh, disruption of like your neurological balance. And then you get questioned by the police and people are trying to you know explain the situation, but you're just like have such an influx of these chemicals where it's, it's hard to, you know, explain and figure out what, what happened. And it's, just, it's very overwhelming. It's, it's very overwhelming. And it's, and then you, like you said, the secondary uh, victimization is gets brought on. So it's kind of like thinking about it now, like I kind of understand more why people don't always always come forward because even when they try to come forward, they still have this kind of rush of chemicals and they still can't really get their story straight. Not because they're lying, but because they literally can't get it. They can't get it straight. It's not not their fault that they can't get it straight. Just the way our brain works. They were traumatized, so it's almost like our brain to keep its sanity. It's almost like trying to to forget that forget that event because sometimes things are better forgotten than than thought about. And it's like you're fighting that that at the same time. And it's just just a uh, it's just a crazy situation to be in. Like, I think it's a perfect role for a nurse because like police officers don't understand the science breakdown and of what's happening. And you brought you um explained it really mm. perfectly. I, it makes so much more sense with with everything that's going on. So I think uh being a nurse advocate for this field is just amazing work. So I hope uh, this field grows in uh nursing and in, in the same position. Mm. Uh, and for anybody that's listening out there, how does one become a sexual examiner, uh, sexual assault nurse examiner? Yeah, so there are different programs um, to take throughout the United States. Um, you can go to the International uh, Association for Forensic Nurses website, um, and they're also on Instagram. Um, and uh, you can find a program that's near you. I know that the University of Colorado SANE SAFE program um, is free to anyone. It just depends on if your work, if you're outside of Colorado, if your work is going to accept that program. So um, you can always, you know, check with your job first and make sure that they're going to accept that. And then some jobs will actually do their own training um, and have their own programs uh, if you get hired to the job. Um, so unfortunately, the ones that are, uh, there are some, some courses that are very expensive. Um, so I wish there was more funding for these because 
I think that's what holds a lot of people back is a lot of these programs are like a thousand dollars. And what if you're going through this program and you decide that you really hate it? That's not a, a little bit of money, right? Um, so I think just um, checking with your hospital, seeing what their requirements are and if they have their own program um, or if they will take one of these government funded programs that like Colorado, the U, sorry, the University of Colorado offers. Um, so with that, it's a 64 hour online didactic, which is nice because you can um, do it in your own pace. You also get 64 CEUs for it. Um, and then you'd have to go to Colorado Springs and there's two days of clinicals where they actually have these volunteers come in and you practice speculum exams on them. And they are just awesome. I was like doing a speculum exam on one of them and they're like, my cervix is down into the left. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so, um, and then it's, it's nice. Like they go through some role-playing. Um, obviously there's going to be so many, um, different scenarios, right? And you just, it's its nerve wracking at first uh, when you do first start as a SANE, but, and you know, you don't have to know um, every, you don't have to know the right things to say all the time. You know, that just kind of comes with each situation and, uh, and learning. So, but if you're interested in being a SANE, um, you know, we really, really need more nurses um, in this field. And it's so important. I wish SANEs were in every hospital. Unfortunately, they're not. Um, but um, yeah, if you are interested, just reaching out to the, the International um, Association for Forensic Nurses, and they are more than welcome, more than happy to help. And is SANE a specialty in forensic nursing? Is forensic nursing like the umbrella term for all these different little specialties they could uh, get into? Yes, exactly. So friends, there's so many different types, right, of forensic nursing and a SANE is just under that umbrella um, as just one particular um, type of forensic nurse. Um, and so typically we will see patients that have been affected by uh, both sexual assault and domestic violence. So when I go to see a patient that wasn't sexually assaulted, but they were um, physically assaulted by like strangulation, um, I say, hi, I'm the forensic nurse. Or when I go to see a patient who was sexually assaulted, I'll say, hi, I'm the sexual assault nurse examiner. So it, they're kind of intercha interchangeable, um, but there's definitely a ton of different types of nursings under the forensic um, in the forensic realm. And then Leah, uh, where can people find you if they want to get more information or just follow you? Sure. I'm on Instagram as off the clock nurse. Um, TikTok, I haven't quite figured out <laughs> how to, I feel really old saying that. Um, but I do, will post some things on TikTok um, as off the clock nurse or off the clock RN, I think. And then I'm on Twitter as off the clock RN but mainly I post stuff to my Instagram. All right, cool. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. Really appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Leah. Have a great day.